Welcome to this episode of the Outfront Podcast with host Vince Noble, the podcast that gives emerging leaders and career transitioning individuals the information and inspiration to thrive and become their best. For sponsorship and advertisement opportunities, please contact info at nobleresolutions.com. And now, your host, Vince Noble. I want to acknowledge each and every one of you stepping into your authentic power today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Outfront Podcast, the show that gives emerging leaders and career transitioning individuals the information and inspiration to thrive and become their best. I am your host, Vance Noble. Hey, everyone, listen. I happen to believe that being able to communicate effectively is perhaps the most important of all life skills and possibly the most undeveloped. So today, we're going to perhaps challenge some of those widely held assumptions we hold regarding communication. As much of an effective communicator that I believe that I am, I've missed the mark more than a few times. So listen, this is not the time to click away This, my friend, is an episode for everyone, regardless of your age, grade, or stage. Because I truly believe we never arrive concerning effective communication. So it is often the messages we tend or we believe we transmit that is often not received as though they are intended. So listen, I am super excited today. We have the amazing Dr. Lynn Marshall. She's a communication strategist from the Leap Effect Group. Dr. Marshall says, if you can change your communication, you most certainly can change your life. So in this episode, we'll be talking about how to effectively change the way many of us have been conditioned to communicate. And we have a lot to unpack in this episode. So let's go. Marshall, welcome to the show today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Wonderful. It's such a pleasure to have you as well. So, Dr. Marshall, tell us a little bit about yourself and what have kind of led you to the work that you do today. Absolutely. You know, I've always been fascinated with words for whatever reason, while other people are into all types of things concerning the performing arts. I like that too, but for some reason, words always got my attention. And so when I went to college, after I graduated from high school, I became an English major. I started out at Bethune-Cookman College, now university, and I was an English major. And um, during my time there, I was still trying to figure out what I wanted to do and end up kind of transitioning from there to another school, Georgia Southern University. And I became a writing and linguistics major simply because I 
loved writing. I enjoyed words. I enjoyed reading, not really knowing uh, that I would have this real desire in um I was just attracted and gravitated to just the art of words. And so it wasn't until a little bit after I graduated, I became a part of an organization called the National Association of Professional Women, NAPW. And I took a communication course. And when I took a communication course, it was free, if you were a member, I just fell in love with it. And I began to understand my communication style and and why I communicate the way that I did and why I was getting certain responses from people. Um, and I realized, okay, there's somewhat of a responsibility that I have. And so after that, I began to study it and just dive further into it, the more that I continued my journey in school. And um, my brother and I, we started a, an organization called the Leap Effect Group. He is the founder and I'm the co-founder and we have other consultants there and we decided that we would offer our skill sets. And so mine is um, being a communication strategist. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. So Dr. Marshall, you know, I sort of believe that, you know, this thing of communication is sort of the heart of all communication. You know, so in other words, it's the subconscious messaging and dialogues we have um, conditioned ourselves to have with ourselves, if you will, that, that have sort of, you know, led us through uh, our path or our directions in terms of how we communicate with others. So, so effective communication, in my view, I believe, commences with the reconditioning or the awareness of the thoughts and perspectives of that person. What would you say to that? I like your definition. Um, I often like to define effective communication as not your ability to use big words, to have fancy rhetoric, um, but simply also is to be able to communicate in the way that you would like to be perceived. A lot of times um, people, they don't understand why they have misunderstandings. Um, they feel that they are saying what someone is should be able to understand or they feel like they're being understood. And a lot of times we are talking the language that we understand and not the language of our audience. Uh, we may have an audience of one or an audience of many, but regardless of whom we're talking to, we need to make sure that we are speaking in a way that people understand us. So not to be able to impress, not to be able to um, be disdainful to talk over people's head or anything like that. So we have there's so many things that we have to consider uh, when it comes to communication, who we're communicating to, how we're communicating, and if we're communicating effectively. You know, so many things to consider. So, you know, what I get from that is that we all start out, you know, in very different places, you know, even from a psychological perspective, if you will, you know, we all go through varying um, life transitions. However, that person, you know, that is honestly seeking to become a much better person, you know, sort of through the process of developing better communication skills in their relationships, you know, or in business or whatever, um, you know, they are struggling, really. You know, there are individuals that wish they could communicate better, and they are struggling to overcome some of, I guess you would say, the cultural conditioning or programming. You know, for instance, how many times, you know, um, have you heard someone say or a person say, um, you took me the wrong way, or this is how I was raised, 
um, you know, or this is how we speak where I'm from, you know. So, um, you know, individuals carry, you know, this mindset, I believe, that um, this is who I am. You know, I don't display a negative attitude or I'm not combative. And, you know, again, this is the way we talk, where I'm from, you know, I'm from Chicago, what have you. So from a cultural perspective, you know, give us some real actionable steps to overcome and work towards, you know, some better uh, communication skills when we know we, we are dealing with some potential cultural ba- uh, barriers, if you will. Absolutely. You know, that's something that I've heard a lot as well, that people say, this is just how I speak, or I didn't say anything that was offensive, or if you feel that way, which is a dangerous thing to say. Um, so what people sometimes forget about is that oftentimes when we go outside of our environment, and our environment is those individuals perhaps that we grew up with, it may be a work environment, that cohort that we interact with on a data basis, uh, whether it's a nine to five or even if it's a proper organization or faith-based community, each one of those communities, they all have their own separate language. They all have their own separate, what I like to call colloquial language. So that is a language that people within that group understand. So when I come from out of that group, let's say from going from work to going home, the language that a person speaks at work among their colleagues is not the same language, perhaps, that they need to speak at home with their spouse or their children. So naturally, we all cold switch. And we cold switch because we understand that when a person, let's say, is working in public health, they have a bunch of acronyms or they have a particular way of presenting information, um, they understand the way that that conversation is to go. But they don't have that same conversation with their five-year-old son or their three-year-old daughter. See, we're more considerate sometimes when it comes to those that are naive or that would be new to the world. But those that have been in the world a long time, we expect them to know. We expect them to understand exactly where we're coming from. So in order to code switch, one of the things that we have to be able to do is, first of all, inquire. We need to always make sure that we are being clear. So sometimes when I'm talking to someone, I will make a statement and then I'll ask the person, did that seem like something that sounded okay? Or I'll say, am I saying it in a way that's understandable where I'm questioning myself and I'm coming from a humble place opposed to, Mm -hmm. you get what I'm saying? (laughs) That comes across a little offensive opposed to, Mm -hmm. did I say that in a way that makes sense? I'm taking responsibility for my delivery. Most people do not take responsibility for their delivery. So code switching is, okay, I have to come from outside of my norm. I have to consider my tone. Some people are very sharp naturally, but that may be that particular culture. And there's nothing wrong with that culture if that's how they converse. Uh, But when I come out of that culture, I have to understand that there are some other people that may have a different communication style and they may be a little bit more timid or they may be a little bit more passive or they may be a little bit more calm. So perhaps someone who's very forward or someone who's sharp cannot talk to someone who's a little bit more timid in that way. So cold switching Mm. and always inquiring if what you said was understood or do you need to re-explain it, that helps you do a self-check and introspection. Right. Wow, that's wonderful. Wonderful. So... You know, so in other words, I believe, you know, really, really in truth, becoming that effective communication, quote unquote, it's really a lifelong pursuit. Would you agree to that? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, 
a lot of times people think that they've arrived when they understand their style of communication. But I often teach four styles of communication. It, it can apply to anyone, man, child, baby. We all have a communication style. We're born actually with three temperaments. So we're either feisty, fearful, um, or we're a person who is just enthusiastic, but we're not afraid. So with these temperaments, as we get older, we develop those temperaments through life experiences. And so when we are having these life experiences, we're also learning more so about how our communication style changes. I teach all four communication styles, which is the thinker, the director, the entertainer, and the feeler. So if a person is a director, they're not always speaking to a director, and a director cannot speak to a feeler as a director because people only communicate in, in the way that they hear. People only hear in the way that they communicate. It's kind of, you know, um, a catch-22 in a sense. So the only way that you're going to be understood and the only way that you're going to be under heard is if you are communicating from the culture from which a person comes from, and that's also how mm. people are received. But when we try to force ourselves and say, I'm right. not changing, this is just how I am, you have to accept me, this is diversity. It's not diversity, it's a lack of flexibility. Right, absolutely. So also, you know, most people think that, um, you know, they think about speech in terms of communicating. But, but there are other nonverbal ways as well to communicate the message, and that may not always be positive as well. What would you say to that? Absolutely. I think in addition to speech, because as I said in the beginning, I don't believe effective communication is limited to vernacular, is limited to a person's mm -hmm. ability to use words, but we also have an emotional language. And many people don't understand the emotional language that they're conveying to people without even opening up their mouth. They're that person that they express their emotions on their face, and people already know what you're thinking before you say it. And so it's important that when you're wanting to communicate your emotions, that you communicate acts first and feeling second. And so that goes with the nonverbal. We communicate oftentimes our feelings on our face, and that may not be the facts. And this is how we can be misunderstood. So the nonverbal communication is very important because people will make a determination before you even have a conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm sort of, you know, I'm huge on a couple of things, and that's that's number one. It's 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 not what you say, it's how you say it. Um, it's picking, you know, the right time uh, to communicate the message that you're trying to say to me. You could be right. But in which way you're saying um, in the wrong way, your delivery is in the wrong way, or you picking the wrong time in which you're trying to communicate your message. So I'm I'm sort of huge on there's a time and place for everything. So you know, is there ever a good time to try to communicate? And if so, you know, you know, how do you establish the right environment, or what should a person really be thinking about in terms of establishing that right environment? You know, I think it all depends upon your audience. So I want to talk about two different types of audiences. Let's say your audience is a friend or perhaps a coworker, and they want to communicate something that may be a sensitive subject that could possibly uh, cause a conflict to ensue or possibly cause maybe some discomfort or nervousness. Well, the first thing a person wants to do is have that conversation in a place that's neutral territory. 
So let me, let's talk about what neutral territory is not. Neutral territory is not come to my office. <laughs> neutral territory is, hey, come over to my house and let's talk. Right. Neutral territory right. is meet me in the boardroom. No, that's not it. So neutral territory is a place where neither party has any type of autonomy or authority. So if a person comes to your house, then if a conversation goes left and someone leaves, they'll leave out of anger, but then say they were kicked out. But a neutral territory could be, hey, let's go to a Starbucks or let's go to the, the diner that no one really goes to. The reason why people want to have neutral territory is because there's not going to be, the intimidation factor is going to go down, for one. And then the timing of it. Most of the time, people are very open when they're eating because you're relaxed. So you're not having, and that's regardless of any type of conversation that you have. So that's really important. And then, of course, you want to consider your audience the time of day. Everybody doesn't like to have a conversation in the morning. Everybody doesn't like to have a conversation when they get off work. So is the weekend going to be better? Is during lunch going to be better? So the time, the place, and then the territory, all that plays a role way before you even have the conversation. If all of those things are not put together, defenses can already be put up. Now, let's talk about maybe some people that you say, well, I don't have this territory. I'm married. Or that's my child. We live together. So if you're in a position where, let's say, you're working all day, you need to have an important conversation with your spouse or your child, one of the things that I always tell people to do, do not have conversations in the bedroom. And the reason for that is because when you lay down at night, it, you, you want to make sure that you are relinquishing all of those thoughts, all of those right. conversations from your filters. Some people are place object oriented. So wherever they had a conversation, a particular place, every time they sit there, they remember that conversation. So if you're having a hard conversation on the bed with your spouse and then you try to lay down and go to sleep, it's going to be challenging. So I tell people, have a conversation at the dinner table. Have a conversation in the car that's removed from the house. You create boundaries. This conversation is in the car. We get in the house, then we're going to transition. Have a conversation in the living room. Do not have it in the bedroom. That's supposed to be your sanctuary where you're able to rest. Same thing with um, a lot of parents come to their children's room to have hard conversations. That's their sanctuary where they're supposed to rest. They can't rest when they've had this hard conversation or challenging conversation so environment is important. The same thing, the time of day, um, the setting, you can create an environment in your home that's pleasant to set it up um, for that. Lighting is important. Sometimes you don't want to have a conversation in a dark room, especially if people you know are prone to depression. Um, sometimes having a bright light just naturally wakes up our senses. All of these things play a role before the conversation even begins. Right, right. So, you know, I always feel... Um, as though, you know, whatever I'm doing, there has to be, you know, sort of this measure measure of, of my success. So, in other words, you know, how is um, effective communication actually measured in terms of um, success or failure? Or is that a way to even look at it? How is that, how is that measured? What would you say to that? You know, I think a person can measure their communication skills and not always looking at so much as a success or failure, but as a progression. 
Um, because some people, the word failure, they hear setback and they can never see comeback. So where, where is my communication skills today? Where am I? And then where do I want to be? And so a person can look at that if they want to do it annually, if they want to do it six months from now. So looking at what are the things that I'm doing to develop myself? Do I know my communication style? Do I know the communication style of my family? Am I stuck in my own style or have I learned how to vacillate, to go back and forth between different styles when need be so that people can hear me in the way that I want to be heard? So if I haven't learned how to do those things, then I'm able to measure my progression. If I haven't, then a person would have that outlook of failure. But more so, I like to look at it from progression. Am I progressing? Because I want to maintain that lifelong learning perspective. I'm constantly trying to develop and become better. Absolutely. So so are there actually some other ways or tips to, to rehearse with yourself to improve your communication skills or just sort of you know, sort of as you go along, what would you recommend? Absolutely. You know, I like to rehearse my communication skills. And what I often tell my clients is I ask, I say, go ahead and ask yourself a few questions. So what makes you angry? What makes you fearful? And what makes you excited? I ask them to make a list of at least five things that makes them angry, fearful, and what makes them excited. The first way that they're going to communicate is by listening. And I tell them to go ahead and get maybe a friend or someone of that nature, and the things that makes them fearful or angry, they're to go ahead and make a scenario and come up with something that happened, five things that relate to fear, five things that relate to anger. And they are to have what I like to call a pleasant poker face. And the reason for that is basically where you're not going to express your emotions um, outlandishly and you're able to be consistent in your demeanor, consistent in your facial expression, and consistent in your response, in your tone. Because that shows that you can manage your emotions rather than your emotions managing you. And so that's a tip within itself because a lot of people, they act out of character when something throws them off guard. So right. in practice, how do I respond to fear? How do I respond to the worst thing that can happen? How do I respond to the greatest thing that can happen? How do I respond to the saddest thing that can happen? We're going to have natural emotions, but we don't want our emotions to take over us. And we say, I just couldn't help it. That's the most weakest statement that we can ever say about ourselves, that I just couldn't help it. Right, right. So you speak a lot about uh, or teach a lot about as well, you know, learning these language patterns that will help improve relationships. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? Sure, sure. When it comes to language patterns, a lot of times, naturally, we have a self-centered language pattern. And what I mean by that is we, we normally speak in first person when we're talking about ourselves. So we'll say, I like, I believe, I think, right? But when we are conversing with other people, especially when we want someone to do something for us, if we want, let's say, a boss wants their team to be compliant to a new policy, a lot of times people say, you all need to, or they need to. You can change your responses. You can be able to foster unity if you transition from the I and you or I and them to we. So Mm. an example of that is, let's say I'm a boss and let's say, you know, you're a part of a team and I say, 
You all need to improve your numbers and your outcomes. This is not looking good for our office. If we don't get, if you all don't get it together, then we're going to start having some layoffs. Opposed to if I change that narrative and I say, our outcomes haven't been really great, but I believe if we continue to work together, we can have better outcomes. So I share the responsibility by saying we opposed to you. Now, what if people did that in various conversations that were challenging, even one-on-one? If a person is offended with their friend or their spouse or a roommate, and rather than saying, I don't like when you say this, it bothers me, opposed to when I heard this, I felt a particular way. How can we have a better conversation? So I'm still sharing the responsibility and I'm communicating the fact before the feeling. When I heard this, I felt this particular way. How can we have a better conversation? So now it also helps because maybe I heard it the wrong way. Maybe I didn't hear it in the way that it was intended. So changing those language patterns from I and you to we. Absolutely. So so I guess it's, it's really being a little bit more strategic, if you will, and how you choose to communicate. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very conscious of words because words have more meaning than we realize that we're even interpreting, but we're responding to it, but we don't realize what we're actually interpreting at a very subconscious level. Also, I heard you speak about, you know, this sort of closing the gap from, you know, so sort of where you are to where you, you want to be. And that's, you know, based on your ability to speak and to understand as you mentioned before, the dominant language of your environment while maintaining your unique voice. I want to talk about that a little bit. And, you know, I personally believe that um, somewhat, you know, that's somewhat of a slippery slope at times, particularly when, you know, you're trying to navigate um, a toxic work environment, would you say? Absolutely. I'll give you an example. I'm um, actually coaching a client right now, and her dominant communication style is a feeler. And so she is very considerate of other people's emotions, just like she would be considerate of hers. But her boss is wanting her to take more initiative, to be more um, assertive. And so as a result of that, she is challenged to be able to change her communication style in order to be more effective. She's a great worker. She's a great person. So The thing with that is sometimes we have to code switch and we have to become what our dominant environment, what our primary environment is demanding for the moment, but we don't have to lose who we are. Naturally, she's a feeler. She's considerate, but she needs to be a director in order to get certain things done. So a director is someone who's very straightforward. They're very black and white. Um, They're not emotionless (laughs) or they don't have any emotions. But they don't consider the emotions first. They are very forward-thinking in nature. They look at the end in mind. Opposed to her natural communication style, she's always considering other people, um, even sometimes before focusing on the task. So those are sometimes what we have to be able to do. I understand you say it can be a slippery slope because you don't want to lose yourself while you're having to code switch. But 
You want to be diverse enough where it's actually you're speaking different languages, but you're staying the same person. It's just like a person who speaks English and French and Spanish. Uh, their native language may be English, but just because they speak Spanish doesn't mean they lose their identity as a person who naturally speaks English. Mm. So, so more specifically, you know, how would you say that that person then um, that, that has a, a natural inclination towards specific communication style, uh, and, and then based on their leadership style, specifically, how would you say they would balance that out? What, what things would they do to balance that out between, again, um, a natural inclination towards specific communication styles and their leadership styles? You know, I think they would have to look at what is their environment demanding. So what is my home environment demanding um, for those that, let's say, they're single parent or let's say, you know, they're in a co-parenting situation? Uh, what is my environment demanding for those that are that are working? So some of the leadership styles that most people are familiar with are the transactional and transformational leadership style. The transactional are, are people that is rewards and punishment of the system. They're very straight and to the point. Um, that particular style would coincide with this style of a director because it is kind of a straight to the point, do as I say type of thing. But if I want to balance that out, because we know in different work environments or even in different families, we don't have the same personalities that are in the family. We don't have the same, um, in a workplace, we don't have the same people that have the same type of personality or even this type of same work ethic. So deliberately, sometimes a, a person may have to vacillate from a transactional to a transformational. A transformational leader, they're going to inspire people. They're going to motivate people. So while they may be transactional and tell people the consequences and speak as a director and be very straight to the point, they may have to shift and become a feeler and remember and reminisce and say, hey, I remember when I was in your shoes. I remember when I was coming up in the ranks. But I know that if we work together, that we can all improve in our outcomes. And I'm sure that even 2021 is going to be better for you. And then they go into a narrative, a story, and being very transparent, sharing empathy. That's transformational style of leadership. That also is a feeler style of communication. At the same time, they communicate their goals for the organization or even for their household through a director or a transactional leadership style. So it's all about balance. And sometimes within the conversation, you may be various leadership styles and you may vacillate between different communication styles as you're making certain points and as you're looking for certain outcomes. So, so I would have to ask as well, you know, if you were to be transparent, I would ask, you know, what were one of your biggest mistakes in attempting to sort of effectively communicate? What, were, what are your most memorable times in terms of, you know, getting over that hump or um, communicating with your team or individual? You know, what were some of those biggest mistakes? And more importantly, you know, what did it what did it teach you and how did you go about uh, rectifying? Absolutely. You know, um, for me, I believe transparency is the best teacher. So as far as mistakes with those from the outside, whether if it was those that I was teaching or that were uh, my colleagues or things of that nature, um, those weren't really big. But I remember when I got married and my first few years of marriage, uh, particularly the first year, that was the most 
the biggest time that I was challenged as far as when it came to communicating, because I was communicating from my culture, from my background, and I was expecting my spouse to understand me through my culture. But he came into the relationship with his own culture. And so when he didn't understand certain things um, that were from my culture, I would give a rebuttal, which came across as reason. And one of the things that I teach people is that reasons are rebuttals. Uh, because sometimes we try to, we call ourselves explaining, but that explanation comes across as a justification. The person on the other end is hearing a justification. We're trying to explain, and before you know it, you're not getting anywhere um, because the other person just wants to be understood. You want to be heard. And so that was the challenge for me um, my first year because there were two cultures coming together, and I was so focused on trying to communicate my culture, I wasn't open at the time when it came to diversifying my culture, diversifying my language patterns, the very things that I was teaching, I was being challenged with, but in a more um, intimate way, in a different way. And it expanded me and it helped me to actually grow and develop. And as a result, I've been able to um, all the more help people with their relationships, whether if it is platonic or romantic, uh, helping them to come outside of their cultural bubble. Absolutely. So listen, Dr. Marshall, you know, what I've found... Um, and over three decades of of leading uh, at at the you know operational and strategic levels in different organizations, what I found out the most is that our subordinates really try uh, to communicate and to understand us to, and to know who we are. Um, and, and so they really try to arrive at: do they know us? Do they like us? Do they trust us? And so. One of the things when we start this show, I would encourage people when they come on to the show is we would do a segment that is called Hot Seat. And so it's a segment where, you know, we ask random questions to each of our guests. And because I have this belief, again, um, that the real value is in the transparency of showing others that the human growth and development process is, is truly ongoing and where we also have, have come from, from a leader perspective. Uh, and so, you know, my first question I would ask you, if you could turn back the time and talk to the 20-year-old self, what would you say to her? You know, I would say the delay is purposeful, but the delivery would be perfect. And what I mean by that is, when I was 20, I felt like everybody was so far ahead of me in every aspect of my life. In education, it seemed like everybody was graduating before me, way before I was Dr. Marshall. Um, I was a freshman in college, and I was taking remedial math, remedial reading and writing, which was supposed to be my strong area. Um, and I wanted to drop out my very first year. I didn't feel like I was college material. Um I stuck in there and I hung in there. I realized at the time that I was a really great student, but I wasn't the best test taker. So I had to learn my learning style. Um, and then even after college, everybody got married before me. So I was like, oh gosh, I'm 20. And and then I, the, the years kept coming and it seemed like I wasn't even, you know, I was going to be the last person, the last pick when it came to that. Um, there were so many different things that I just had to wait on, but I realized that it was for my personal development. I realized that um, I'm a person of faith and I knew that God had a plan for me. And so by the time that I came into everything, 
um, and all the more still coming into things, but the things that God had for me, it was so much better in the delivery than the delay that I thought that was going to be a lifetime. Oh, wow. That's, that's so wonderful. You said it. Hey, thank you for sharing that with us. And uh, just based on what you said, it's loaded with all sorts of nuggets. And uh, I believe just, again, based on what you just said, that alone is going to help carry someone um, to the next level, next phase of their life, um, just by hearing those words. Um, so what's, what's something uh, people seem to misunderstand about Lynn? Not Dr. Marshall, but Lynn. I believe that a lot of people misunderstand that Lynn is a very layered person. Um, I feel kind of like Superman, you know, Clark Kent. When I'm Dr. Marshall, you put on that, you know, that cape right. on your chest. Um, but Lynn is very layered and I have many sides, uh, many different mm -hmm. likes and um, things, of course, that I'm yet discovering. One of the things that people don't know is when I was younger, I had a speech impediment and a lisp. And when I, when I was a child and if it wasn't for having great parents, they told those instructors who wanted me to put, um, they wanted to put me in a class uh, you know, they're, they're quick to label your children these days. And they Absolutely. wanted me, they want me to put me in a special class. And they said, no, we're going to work with her. And so they would have never known that that was a struggle for me, not knowing that I would be teaching communication. And so even as I got older at times, if I wasn't really thinking and I was just really relaxing, those particular challenges would try to come back. Um, of course, before I would morph into Dr. Marshall. <laughs> and so uh, we all have challenges. We all have struggles. So I would say that perhaps my greatest strength was at one point my struggle. That's awesome. So um, what, is your, what is your biggest failure and what did you learn from it? I believe my biggest failure at the time of what I perceived to be a failure uh, was going back to perhaps when I was a sophomore in college at the film Cookman College, it was a university at the time, and I was transitioning to another school, and I found out uh, while I was transitioning to another school that there were going to be courses that I had to take over, uh, and then some because those credits wouldn't transfer, and then others because when I was in school my freshman year, as I told you, it was very challenging for me, so I had to repeat, I believe, college hours were maybe two, almost three times, and I just mm. felt frustrated. I felt like, you know, I can't get this. I don't understand it, and I remember my academic advisor. Her name was Dr. Duncan, Dr. Margaret Duncan at the Film Cookman College. Ironically, she was my academic advisor, but she also was my mother's teacher when she attended Bethlehem College. Who knew? And so um, she told me one thing. She said, no educational experience is a waste of time. And that has always stuck with me. And so rather than having the broken mindset that I had to start over, my mindset developed into I'm never starting over. It's impossible. I can only start forward. And so um, once again, you know, it seemed like a delay and having to transition to another school and take other courses because those courses didn't transfer or having to take college algebra, you know, uh, two, three times, it wasn't a, a delay. It was an experience where it wasn't a waste of time. It was an educational experience that brought in me and helped me become who I am today. Wow. That's wonderful. And so 
I know that I'm certain that this is something that you perhaps already know or or have already been told, but I'm waiting on uh, the book version of the first three answers to the questions I've asked you, sir. <laughs> that, that is awesome, really, um, because I believe that, um, and I say this all the time, our stories um, are our stories. And, and we all, in fact, have a story, but you just have to be willing to tell your story because it is your story that may change the trajectory of someone else's life, and you never know how the world will respond to your story until you tell your story, but you just have to be willing to tell your story. And that's an awesome story that I've just heard right there. I'm, I'm just motivated by just hearing just the first three answers to what you've given me. And I'm certainly thank you for sharing that with us. My last question would be, what makes you feel inspired and at your best self? I kind of can't help it because it's the truth. Words. And when I mean words, I could hear a new word that I've never heard before, and I'm immediately inspired to look it up. I have dictionary.com on my phone, <laughs> and um, a word can just, it can motivate me to develop an entire new training on communication. It can motivate me to write. It can motivate me to think um, how, not just the definition, how that word was used, but how can it be used effectively? How can it be used offensively? How can it be used um, to persuade, to negotiate, all of those things? So, Because sometimes it's not the definition of a word. As you stated, is is how it's said. It's also um, how someone perceives it. And we can't help a person's perception, but we certainly can help influence their perception. But we can't change it, but we can influence their perception. So I'm always listening to what's a better word? What's a better way uh, to say that? Um, mm. How can, how can I say something a little bit more tasteful where it doesn't sound as offensive? So I play with words so that I can be able to help them come across softer on the ears of my audience. Absolutely. Um, you know, you know, I happen to believe the same as well, because I believe that, you know, sometimes all it takes is one word. And that, that is delivered uh, in the right spirit at the right time in the right way. You know, words are, are life-giving, and, and words can also, um, you know, be the death of someone. So words are certainly, uh, you know, most important, uh, and especially that individual that really try to use words to communicate in a way to help shape different perspectives in a way. I would say. Absolutely. That's wonderful. Hey, and thank you for sharing that with us. So Dr. Marshall, um, um, thanks again for, for joining us. Um, but before we go, um, how, how can people connect with you? Some of the things you're doing either online or through social media. Absolutely. Um, for those that are on Facebook, they can go to the Leap Effect Group's page. That is the team's page that I'm part of our organization, but they can also go to Dr. Lynn Marshall Communication Strategist. That's a page on Facebook. But if you're interested, if any listeners out there are interested in receiving communication training, I offer often um, a training once a month. Is The one that's coming up is going to be called Nailing the Interview. That's going to be on November 18th. That is theleapeffect.com. 
And once you go on there, you can, you have different bios, other consultants on there because there's other things that are offered. But if you go to my page, you'll see the different trainings there, and you can go ahead and register for the training. It's available for that month. But if you also like a one-on-one session, you have an opportunity to book me through my calendar and the different dates that are available. You're able to have an exclusive one-on-one session and we're able to get you rolling and get you motivated to be able to communicate in the way that you would like to be perceived. Absolutely. That's certainly wonderful. That's certainly wonderful. So again, Dr. Marshall, thanks once again for joining us today. And it has certainly been a pleasure And please come back and check in on us sometime. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thanks, everyone, for staying with us. We certainly hope that you enjoyed today's episode. So make sure you join our Facebook group, Out Front with Vince Noble. And don't forget to comment, rate, share, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcast. Until next time, remember, you still get to write your own life story. You look globally uh, in America, you know, African-Americans in America are are the only group of people sort of totally amputated away from the tree, if you will. On the global perspective, if you look anywhere around the world, um, most immigrants still maintain in the household uh, their language, their religion, their dress, their sense of taste, all those customs and courtesies. And then not only that, they'll get the opportunity to visit, um, you know, their native country, if you will, that's at some point in time for the most part. Which is um, which is why when people compare like um, immigrants, black immigrants from the Caribbean, I'm always like, no, because I know my family frequently went back and forth to Jamaica. You know, me not being, you know, not being born there, not so much, but I have family members where they f- would frequent back and forth several times a year. They owned houses in Jamaica, even though they lived here in the States. They always had that connection with who they were and where they came from. And mm-hmm. we see that in South Florida with the Cuban community. So 
that gives you a sense of belonging. That gives you a sense of when you go, when you come from a country where everybody, teachers, lawyers, doctors, the janitor, the gas station attendant, the president, everybody is from your race or ethnicity. You have a totally yeah, different yeah. mindset when you go to a country yeah. that's majority white or a majority anything because you already have your sense of well-being and your sense of worth right. from seeing that all around you growing up, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I get I get asked a lot, uh, Vince, how would you advocate, you know, uh, for diversity, equity, inclusion with people who simply, you know, don't care or understand is important? How would you speak to that? Um, I get sometimes told that we have to make the case for diversity. Somebody told me that a few weeks ago, and I was so triggered by that because I think that sometimes people do feel as though in order to advocate, you have to make some kind of business case or you have to say, hey, you know, it would be beneficial for you to have different ideas because then your company can be more flexible and they'll know, you know, what's going on and they'll be a little bit more responsive. I just think the same way that women have been able to just say, you know what, we need to be in these spaces and Mm -hmm. they don't really make a case for it. They just say women need to be in these spaces the same way men do. I think the same thing happens with, I love what the LGBTQ community says. They're just loud and apologetic and they're just like, we're going to be in these spaces. We're going to, there's like, there's nothing that you can, we're not going to make a case for why our sexual identity is something you should accept. You're just going to accept it. And that's just that. And they just do it. And I think that that's a part of with black people. I think we've been taught that, well, we, you have to kind of like figure out how to make it palatable for the mainstream. You have to show them like why you would be a great, because yeah, if you know, if you get me to be, you know, the principal at your school, then, you know, a lot of those black kids, I can go out there and, you know, rap with them, and make them see right. that it's cool right. to be an educator. I'm not doing that. No, mm-hmm. you just need to mm-hmm. let me be in those spaces and not even let me like, like James Baldwin says, I don't want you to let me be anything. I just want you to leave me alone and just let me do what I need to do. Like you don't have to actually let me because I, even the idea of saying let me is problematic. So I, I mm-hmm. think that as far as the diversity piece, the advocating for it is just that we are a part of society and we're going to be in every area of society the same way that women want to be in every area of society, the same way the LGBTQ community wants to be in every area of society. And the advocating is that we are going to be a part of every area of society. We just saw the first black woman, biracial uh, woman in, in Kamala Harris, who has mm-hmm. been uh, elected to the vice presidential position. And th- that office is what she deserves because everybody else has access to be able to be it. So there, I, I think that's really where I, where I come down when it comes to advocating. I think advocating is just like being, there should be, there shouldn't be a need for us to advocate for something. We live in this country where 13% to 14, 15% of the population. So we should be in every area, whether it's the highest levels of government, whether it's corporate America, whether it's education, we should be represented in all those areas, just like women should be represented, just like every other 
community should be represented because that's just fair. That's just what it should be. Right. So, you know, you spent a great amount of time, as you as you spoke of, in, in the learning institutions. Overall, how do you see the role of institutions in shaping question a lot. And I think um, uh, the higher education institutions especially are responsible for shaping the minds and and giving the young people um, a foundation for being able to think critically, obviously for learning the skill that they're going to use on the job, but also to be able to think critically and to be able to navigate spaces and to understand what's happening. So for us as institutions, we have to make sure that our institutions reflect that. And I think higher education overall has not done a really good job. About 5% of college faculty are black, which is really underrepresented, especially as we go into the next 20 years. Students of color, black students and other students of color are going to start to be the majority. There are some career schools and community colleges, they're about 30% of the population. And even though there's still a very small percentage of a lot of these um, elite schools, which is still problematic as well. But as we go into this enrollment decline and cliff, there's less and less students and the the students that are coming from these more diverse backgrounds are actually going to start to be the majority. So our colleges and universities have to reflect that. We have to see that in the classroom because if we see it in the classroom there, I think Kamala Harris actually put out a stat that if a, if a child has a black teacher by, I think it was third grade, they're more likely to be successful to go on to graduate high school, to be more successful later on. So we want to look at what are we doing to recruit these um, instructors, whether it's K through 12 teachers, whether it's college instructors, what does the process look like? Where are we looking for people? Are we putting up barriers that would otherwise not cause people to want to go into these uh, fields? So what does the pay look like? There's so many different areas that us in education need to think about so that we can be more reflective of our student bodies. We can support our student bodies. I know for me going to a PWI, I didn't have any black, I had one black teacher the whole time I was in undergrad. And that's problematic because you as a student, you need to see yourself reflected in leadership. Uh, 7% of higher education um, administrators are black. That's problematic. We need black leaders. We need black leaders to push the agenda so that these students can get the support and access that they need, we can retain them better, we can graduate them better so that they can go out and be the next generation of leaders. Absolutely. So, so I have to ask from a, from a policy perspective, if you had your way for a day, what would your top three priorities be? In, um, in higher education or just? In, in, um, in matters of higher education, social justice, any one of your three policies that's that's you know could be relating. What would your top three policies would be? Wow, it's a really good question. I think that the biggest agenda needs to be better equity in hiring, and it needs to be measurable and it needs to be meaningful. Uh, we have tons of talent out here, and it's 
really demoralizing when you look at some of the stats and you see that these companies are just not hiring the black Mm -hmm. talent. And if you don't have black talent, whether it's in organizations, whether it's in higher education, then it's, then you can't really move the needle because if, Mm -hmm. if I looked at a stat yesterday and black women specifically are overrepresented in low paying jobs throughout the United States. We're overrepresented in terms of the workforce and overrepresented in terms of the the lower paying jobs. So that has to change. I think that in order for us to have better outcomes, where whether it's closing the wealth gap, whether it's uh, wealth equality, whether it's home ownership, there's so many different measures and markers for well-being. And if we don't, if we're not in the spaces to be able to have opportunities, then there's no way for us to be able to close all those other areas. So that would probably be my number one would be addressing in meaningful ways, proportionate to population, the percentages of black people in higher education and in the corporate Environments we're already overrepresented in the, the lower paying jobs, and we need to focus on. We have plenty of uh, college educated and professional black and other people of color as well, but specifically in this instance, black uh, professionals tend to be the lowest represented. So what is happening there? And if that needs to be addressed, like in California, they're looking at um, look, looking at the whole idea of if they want to take another look at quotas. I don't know the mechanism for it, but if quotas is what it takes and that's just what it takes. Some people don't like quotas because they feel like, well, it's just putting a number or it means that, you know, it's reverse racism. Well, clearly the, I don't see color that is not working because it means that if, if you get my resume and my resume says Keisha, as opposed to my resume saying, um, Karen, then, Keisha is not getting an interview and Karen is, and that's not fair. So we need to figure out how to address that equitably, meaningfully, and measurably. Right. Wow. That's, that's, that's great. So let me ask you this. Do you, do you think the black lives matter movement have the capacity to achieve um, a more perfect union, if you will? And from a strategic perspective, where would you like to see you know, the movement transition to? I think that the the great thing about the, the Black Lives Matter movement is that it's giving more visibility and the resurgence since the George Floyd incident, since that murder, it's given some meaning and, and given a cause to coalesce around. And I, I just feel as though it's, it's almost like when they talk about fingers being spread out and then if you push it, if you pull them together, they're like a fist. So I, I feel as though for many of uh, the, the, the ones of us that are speaking out and being so vocal about social justice, I definitely feel as though there are just those areas that we want to kind of zone in on and focus on, whether it is holding uh, organizations, corporate organizations more accountable, whether it's social justice issues and and police brutality, whether it's just um, wealth distribution and and ensuring that the laws are equitable. I definitely feel as though there's a capacity to reach a more perfect union, but 
people need to get out of the mindset and those in the majority culture need to get out of the mindset of the idea of meritocracy because mm-hmm. there are so many laws and rules legally now that mm-hmm. are disadvantaging those that are in marginalized communities. There's so many issues. We saw this with COVID where black community is disproportionately affected when we're talking about healthcare. We talked about education where children, even K through 12, are disproportionately disadvantaged. All of these, um, we're talking about hiring and black women making 62 cents to a dollar, black men making about 80 cents to a dollar for their white cohorts in a workplace. That's not Mm -hmm. fair. So these things need to be addressed and they need to be addressed in a way that's meaningful. If the Black Lives Matter movement can push the envelope and, and push the conversation so that other groups and other individuals can have just something to coalesce around, then I definitely feel like that's a positive thing. Mm-hmm. So would you would you say that um, you know things are getting better or worse? I mean, because if you if you ask uh, most individuals, um, you know they have this idea of um, things are getting worse. That's a really good question. And I, th- I think about that question almost daily. In some ways, I feel as though things are getting worse to a certain extent in that it goes back to what we talked about in the very beginning. There's been, I think, especially over the last few years, more emboldened people feeling as though they won't have any repercussions if they do something. So that, that I think is scary for me. The idea that maybe before people would have been a little bit more cautious and been like, okay, I might, you know, start that or do that, but you know, I don't want to get in trouble. And now people feeling like, oh, I won't get in trouble. If I do this, nothing's going to happen. And that I think is scary. And in that way, I think that it's getting worse, but I do think it's getting better in that those of us that want to speak up, those of us that have been working to make sure that our voices are amplified and that we really shine a light on some of these issues, that has gotten better. I think that people are no longer willing to sit on the sideline and not say anything because, oh, I don't want to get people in my job mad or I don't want people to think that I'm a troublemaker. I told my husband, go ahead and pick up a second shift on your job or whatever you have to do because if someone on my job don't like it, I just won't (laughs) have a job. That's the way I'm looking at it. You know, I work in higher education, which is very traditional. Typically higher education is a little bit more conservative depending on where you work. And I told him, you know what? I don't care about that because guess what? George Floyd and his family and his children, they don't get to worry about those kind of things. The things that they're worrying about are so beyond what I could ever even imagine as a mother. So Mm -hmm. for me to know that I work in higher education and I told somebody the other day, I tell my students, speak up, you know, be an advocate, go out there, be a critical thinker, don't just accept. And then I'm out here just going along with the program and just doing things and, and not speaking up, knowing that I'm seeing things all around me that aren't right. 
that's being a hypocrite. So for me, absolutely, absolutely. You know, it's yeah. it's it's always this fear of um, retribution, mm-hmm. if you will, mm-hmm. um, and and so so many people in the situations where um, they would like to do more, they recognize they need to do more, but now it's 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 this fear of retribution. Mm-hmm. And that happens a lot. You know, a lot of jobs they don't they don't want you necessarily to be outspoken. So, so what would you say, you know, a, a way to get involved in this, in, in, you know, during this pandemic and um, there's less, um, you know, connection, if you will, engagements, if you will, um, and, and this idea on using social media from a positive perspective, how, how would, how would you recommend individuals use social media to become more impactful? I think the great thing about social media, and I see this as an educator, is that even with the pandemic, we've had to pivot in higher education to how students receive information. So a lot of the students, they want short little bursts of information. They're, the Gen Zs are different from like a Gen X or a boomer or some of the older generations that could sit and were used to like, I'm a Gen Xer, so I'm an original latchkey generation. So we came home, we cooked our own ramen noodles, we sat down, we did our homework on our own, we were very self-directed, no one had to tell us anything. We were used to being by ourselves quietly. So we could, I could sit and read. Like when I was in college, I would sit and study for like hours on end. And I would not, I didn't even have a cell phone. So there was nothing to keep mm-hmm. me distracted. This generation, I have a daughter that's 20, 21 going on 22 and she's a Gen Z and they're all over the place, you know, they, and it's mm-hmm. just not, not a bad thing, but that's just how they were raised. They're digital natives. They always had a, a phone in their hand. They get their information short bursts from Instagram, from YouTube. They're looking, if they want to know how to do something, they're not going to read an article. They're going to, a lot of times right. look at a quick five minute YouTube video, got it and go do it. So I think that social media has the ability and we've seen that with COVID and having to deploy a lot of our classes online and find ways to engage our students. Social media has a lot of potential to teach, you know, social media. A lot of students I've heard from. So talking to some of these younger students, they like to get their information from little short nuggets. And if we can take social media and use it as a teaching tool, use it. A lot of the things that I've learned even over the last six months when I, as being more vocal in uh, issues dealing with social justice. A lot of it I have learned from social media, being pointed to articles or looking at short video clips or finding like a little meme or something that's led me to maybe, uh, I had a meme that I saw uh, circulating around about the questions that you need to ask in order to be more diverse. And I posted it and someone said, oh, that meme came from um, uh, a, 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 a social justice or, or equity uh, professor out of Colorado State, and I reached out to the professor and ended up having like an hour conversation with him about his uh, philosophy about diversity. So it just kind of shows you that everyone's on social media, everyone is putting information out there. Social media can be a great tool to teach. Social media can be a great tool for people to just maybe see a picture or see a statement or see a short video clip and say, wow, that's really interesting. Let me find out more about why this is such an issue. Uh, I've posted things about redlining that people are like, I didn't even know that was a practice. I was led to go research it to find out more. So there's mm-hmm. different ways that we can leverage social media 
and use it as a way to stimulate a, a potential student, whether they be a young person or even older people that are set in their career and just don't know about these issues and, and want to be more educated and want to be more aware of what's going on in the country around us. So, Elizabeth, what, what can we expect to see from you in 2021? <laughs> That's a really good what question. Does 2020, what does 2021 look like for That's you? That's a really good question. I'm going to keep pushing the envelope, making sure that I talk about social justice, and I always speak about it from a historical context. So not just, okay, we're here today, but what led to that? Because we need to understand what led to it, just like in, when we're thinking about ourselves as a person. Like, where did I come from? Where am I now? Or where am I going? And I want us to think about that as a society as well, when it comes to racial equity and diversity and being more inclusive as a society. How can we be better? And I'm going to continue to push that message, whether it's on social media, whether it's in articles, whether it's just podcasting. I always want to think about what I can do to add to the discourse and make sure that I'm talking to people like yourself that are very active and that want to have these conversations and make sure that they bring relevant discourse to those that might not know about it or might know a little bit and want to know more. So that's really what I'm going to continue to do. I want to continue to push the envelope. I definitely want to continue to use my voice in a meaningful way and uh, make sure that I'm adding something positive. A lot of people have been saying, you need to write a book. You need to you know, do Absolutely. more. So that may be on the horizon. And I think that if you would have asked me this time last year, if I would have been talking to you, I would have been like, oh my gosh, no, I could never do that. So, you know, I think that I'm leaving myself open to opportunity and making sure that whatever I do, I contribute to society and especially to advancing the cause of racial equity, especially for blacks in America and doing. And, and, and that's so, that's so key. And, um, you know, I always say that to individuals that um, if, if you delivering massive value, wherever you may be, that then today you have an obligation um, to replicate the blueprint in a mentorship program. Yes. And so who, who are your replacements that you are preparing? I present that to leaders oftentimes is, is that have you identified your replacement, because all great leaders prepare their replacements. True. And if you're delivering this value, then now your 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 last obligation is is to replicate that in which you're doing um, in a mentorship program. Good point. And so, oftentimes we don't do that, and so we die with the scepter in our hand. <laughs> And so a lot of the time, the great work that we do oftentimes gets left behind. No point. No uh, point. And so that's wonderful. So, Elizabeth, before um, we go, how can people connect with you, some of the things you're doing, some of the things you're planning, either online or through social media? I am all over social media. I am on um, Instagram. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I have a podcast. Uh, edupexperience.com is where people can listen to the podcast. We talk to higher education leaders all over the country. 
We also have a YouTube channel, the Ed Up Experience YouTube channel is where I have kind of really made my target and my focus talking to uh, leaders in the Black community about issues that we care about. So that's primarily the vehicle, not necessarily for higher education, but more just in the Black community and talking to those that have perspectives on our lived experience on our YouTube channel. So those are the primarily the areas that people can connect with me. I'm all over LinkedIn. I post literally every day. So anyone that wants to reach out to me can just search for me on LinkedIn. And I'm more than happy to always connect with people that are doing big things and, and trying to make a difference in the community. Cause that's what I'm, I'm all about as well. Absolutely. That's, that's wonderful. So Elizabeth, thank you once again for joining us today. And it has certainly been a pleasure and we look forward to seeing and hearing from more of you. So please come back and check on us soon. Will do. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure and an honor. Absolutely. Thanks, everyone, for staying with us. We certainly hope that you enjoyed today's episode. So make sure you join our Facebook group, Out Front with Vince Noble. And don't forget to comment, rate, share, and subscribe to Apple Podcasts or wherever you download or listen to your podcast. Until next time, remember, you still get to write your own life story.